All right, First John chapter 5, we are getting close to being com- finished completing this study of 1 John 5 and of the epistle of 1 John and 1 John 5 more specifically. So look with me in our reading tonight. We'll read verses 18 through 20. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding, that we may know him that is true, that, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Last week, we examined the previous verses of this chapter, in which John provides an exhortation concerning how we are to pray for our brothers who have sinned. And just in a, a very quick, brief review... Uh, In verse 16 we read, If a man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for that that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Again, when we read these verses, let's remember what the Scripture says in just the previous verses concerning prayer, where John writes and says that if we pray according to his will, then he heareth us, and we know that if he heareth us, then he grants the petitions which we ask. Remember, he's already stated that. Well, these verses just clarify that even more so. If a brother has sinned a sin not unto death, pray for that brother and he'll be restored. And if a brother sinned a death unto death, don't pray for him because that's outside of God's will. He's going to die. And so this, again, just really supports everything that John's already stated in the previous verses. And the question we addressed last week was simply this. What does John mean by the sin not unto death and sin unto death? Well, we know that God warned Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that if they disobeyed his command or if they sinned, that it would result in death, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Adam did sin, of course, and the Scriptures teach that because Adam sinned, all men are under the curse and consequence of Adam's original sin, as indicated by Paul in Romans 5, 12 through 14, Romans 3, 23, and Romans 6, 23, and of course other passages of Scripture as well. There are sins committed in such a manner in which God in His mercy and long-suffering will chasten and correct, yet also demonstrate great grace and forgiveness. Likewise, there are sins which men commit in which God quickly executes His judgment. And so we find examples of that both in Old and New Testament. And we won't read through these again, but I do want to mention them too. And these are just a few examples. There's more than this, of course. In the Old Testament, there's a sin unto death with Uzzah, if you remember, in 2 Samuel 6, 6-7, where he is... the ark is being transported the ark shifts and he reaches out like out of instinct to 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 secure it to stabilize it and when he touches the ark god slays him dead now again there's something to remember about that that seems awfully harsh you have to admit i mean it sounds whenever he's just trying to protect the ark you would think that that seems exceptionally harsh that god would slay him when it was out of instinct it wasn't something done maliciously or with ill intent or something done out of out of like an outright rebellion against God, though he was disobeying, which is rebellion ultimately, but yet it wasn't as though he was acting out in rebellion and saying, I'll just do this regardless of what God says. It was more of an instinct, I'm convinced, by the way Scripture outlines and portrays it. Now, in that situation, uh, what we must remember, though, is that the ark was obviously being transported in a manner and by a man who was not qualified to do so because it was supposed to have be carried by the priest with the staves, if you recall, and obviously that's not what was happening here. So there's a premise preceding or upon which Uzzah's death occurs, and that is that there was already a disobedience with God, not honoring, not observing the manner in which God said to do this. As a matter of fact, if Uzzah had been requested to, 
to transport the ark. And he was aware, of course, of God's instruction concerning how it was to be transported. It would really behoove him to say no and decline that job and not have done that. And so God does slay him because that is holy. God's presence was with his ark, and therefore he was violating a, a serious command of God concerning the way that the ark was handled. Then you find their sin not unto death. For example, in David in 1 Samuel 21 through through 6. Again, we see examples of David. This particular example is one in which there's the table of showbread, and David and his men are coming along, and he says, David, you're hungry, and actually, uh, you need to read the context of that entire situation, but David says they were on a mission from the king, of course, they're hungry, they need to eat, and so in, in saying that, then the, the priest says, well, all I, I don't have any common bread, all I have is, is, is showbread, table, or, or holy bread, uh, for the temple bread, if you will, and so David says, well, give it to us, and they said, well, have you... Uh, have your men been with women in, in three days' time or what have you? And he said, no, they have not. So he says, okay, then you can partake of this. So they give him the showbread. Now, that's something holy that's consecrated to God as well. But God's presence was not with the showbread as it was the ark. And David was not doing this just out of convenience. It was necessity. And even though it's not saying that's okay and that it's all right, yet God did not slay David or his men for this particular sin or this violation. Then you find the New Testament, and there's examples there as well. They're sent unto death with Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, 1 through 10. Of course, you know the example that is given there concerning Ananias and Sapphira and how that they come, and they wanted to, again, to give you an understanding of the context, chapter 4 is necessary, the latter part of 4, to read that in order to understand the significance of chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Um, oftentimes, this chapter is isolated again, as so many are, in, re- in respect to the account of Ananias and Sapphira, but they don't consider the previous text, which again is a premise for what happens in chapter 5. And so just as Uzzah reached out and touched the ark, which would have never been accessible to him to begin with, so it is with Ananias and Sapphira that they take and they sell their property and they bring the money to Peter and they say, oh, here's the money for the house, or here's the money for the church that we sold the property. And Peter says, uh, it, it was it not yours to do with what you wanted to? In other words, you didn't have to sell it to begin with. You didn't have to bring the money. But here you are bringing it, and you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, why would he say such a thing? Because Peter obviously is not the Holy Spirit. So why would Peter say that? Well, the whole intent was that back in chapter 4, uh, Barnabas and the others had all things in common, the church did, and they were ministering one to another as they would bring all that they had together, put it in one big pot, and then with oversight, the apostles, as oversight, would then distribute to the necessity of the saints. And so the the apostles would be ministering of all the goods of all the believers. And so God was honored in that, and and there was was joy, and there was was, uh, rejoicing within the body of Christ because the needs were being met, and people were giving one to another unto the Lord, and therefore serving one another, ministering. And Ananias and Sapphira saw that, and they're like, we want a piece of that. But we really don't want to put everything in. We just want to say we put everything in. We want, to be, we want the recognition of Barnabas and the others, though we're not going to sacrifice as Barnabas and the others did. And so they come and then it's a counterfeit is what it is. It's a counterfeit of what God was doing. It's Satan's counterfeit because he says, Satan hath filled thine heart. Remember to do this thing or whatever or what have you in the text. And so the point is that, that it's a counterfeit of what God was doing and Ananias and Sapphira are used by Satan to counterfeit God's work of distributing to the saints and ministering to the saints as it would please him and honor him. And so it's, hey, look, if Ananias and Sapphira would have brought the money and said, look, 
uh, we're not giving everything, Peter, but we're going to give a portion. This is what we want to give. That would have probably, I believe that would have been absolutely fine. The issue is they are, uh, they are coming as though they are giving everything like all the other believers, and they want that same recognition while they're holding back for themselves. And so the matter is that of lying to the Holy Spirit in the sense that they are coming to the church saying, oh, here's everything, we sold the property, and here's the money. And that really wasn't the truth whatsoever. And so God slays them instantly. They are dead. But then also there's a sin not unto death when you consider the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Remember, he said Paul is rebuking the church, and he speaks about how there's fornication among you, and such is not even named among the Gentiles, and that is that a man would, uh, would uh, commit fornication with his father's wife, which would have been a stepmom in this case, not his mother, but his stepmother. And, so, and, and yet the church, again... Paul says, you glory in this. Now, it's not that they were saying amen to this man doing the, committing the sin, but the glorying, what happened was they were tolerant of this man rather than rebuking him, rather than correcting him. They were tolerant of his sin, and God is rebuking them through Paul's writing. He is rebuking them because they have tolerated this sin, and they are proud of their tolerance. That sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? They were proud of their tolerance of sin within the body of Christ. And by the way, when you look at Ananias and Sapphira, had they given this money and had, had they not been struck dead, then the point of the matter is the church would have still benefited, would it have not? I mean, it was still more, more income for the church, financially more goods, that they could have used to distribute to the needs of the saints as a whole. But yet, God says no. Whereas with the account of the man in 1 Corinthians 5, which is in fornication, we find that, uh, it affected the whole of the body of Christ in that sense of the Corinthian church. And I say that for this reason, because Paul goes on to say, do you not know that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? And in that same text, Paul is explaining that it was the sin of this man that affects the entirety of the body of Christ. So here you have a, a man who's committing sin that affects the entire body because of the manner in which they responded to the sin, but it still impacted the entire body in a terrible way. And then you have a man and woman who are giving, contributing to the ministry or to the church, and God says no and strikes them dead. Now that seems a little off, doesn't it? It seems a little odd that God would do such a thing. But again, there's a premise that is set prior to the sin they commit. And so you have to understand that to understand the, the, the reason God would do such and the seriousness of the sin. Verse 17 goes on to say, All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. So there is a sin unto death and a sin not unto death. However, all sin ultimately results in death. So again, when John writes this, he's not speaking of sin in a general sense, neither is, but rather he is speaking of sin to a degree in a specific sense and saying this isn't just about sin in general, but neither is he saying it's about one specific sin, but rather specific sins which are unto death, such as immediate judgment. And then there are, uh, there are other sins that are not immediate judgment of God, but that does not negate the fact that all are the truth, that all sin ultimately results in death. So when John says there's a sin not unto death and a sin unto death, vice versa, he's not saying, oh, there's some sin you won't die for. No, he's saying God will not harshly, quickly punish or judge, if you will, all sin the same in the sense of immediate judgment. There are reasons God does that. And so, again, to go back to context of what John is stating, stating and, and, and writing, he said previously, of course, as I mentioned a moment ago, that there were those, of course, within the church who uh, John wrote that there were those who would, be, or who would pray, and as they prayed, they were to pray in a manner uh, that was in submission to the will of God, not outside of God's will, and knowing that we, He hears us, 
when we pray according to his will, and he, we grants the petitions. If he hears us, he grants the petitions which we would ask. And so here when he comes to this verse, he's saying again, there is a sin unto death, there is a sin not unto death. Pray for the one that commits a sin not unto death. Why? And he'll give him life. So he's not changing his mind on this. He's saying, okay, pray for those who have not died due to their sin that they might be restored. But understand, there are also sins unto death. You don't pray for them. I'm going to take the life. That's just what it is. And so this aligns perfectly with what John has already stated in the previous verses. Now, as we progress in our study of this portion of John's epistle, in which he is concluding the letter, John continues to affirm that there is irrefutable evidence which exists as proof of one's fellowship with Jesus and our Heavenly Father. And we see this in the first two words of verse 18, in which John writes, We know. Now, he's already said something similar to this in, in the previous, in chapter 1, and he also says this in chapter 5, verse 13, but here he says, We know. And so we see this in the first two words of verse 18. And the word know, again, means see. So he's saying we see. And this statement refers, as I mentioned a few weeks back, this statement in verse 13, when he says, these things have I written unto you. Remember in chapter 1 he says, uh, I write these things unto you that your joy might be full, remember? But then he says, I have written these things unto you that you might know that you have eternal life. And so when he says you may know, this is the same meaning, the same word that's used here is used in verse 13 of chapter 5. And so this word know, it means see, and the statement refers to a cognitive understanding of a truth based upon the evidence that's been provided. So John is saying that we see or we understand based upon the provided evidence which John has already detailed throughout the entirety of this epistle. So again, we go to the eight tests, that, as I referenced them, and others have as well, but the eight tests that I referenced concerning evidence, proof or evidence of one who is in fellowship with God, and vice versa, the absence, or John declares in contrast, the evidence of one who is not in fellowship with God. So John lays out some very, very blatant, very blunt, very uh, bold and definitive absolute statements about those who are in fellowship with God and those who are not in fellowship with God. And so here, when he says again, we know, the word no meaning see, carrying that, that implication or meaning of a cognitive understanding. And we mentioned this some weeks back, and I want to say this again. The church is not to be driven by emotionalism or by their emotions. We are to be rooted and grounded in truth. And we are to be sober-minded we are to be of a sound mind. That does not mean we don't rejoice. It does not mean that we don't get excited about the, the, the working of God and the salvation that He's provided us and His provision in Christ. These things should cause us great joy and excitement. In fact, John says that again. I, I write these things unto you that you, your joy might be full. So the point is that we might have genuine joy. But at the same time, John is now saying, we, I've written all this to you that you might see, that you might have a cognitive understanding. And again, I, I say this to you. We are not to be emotional beings with intellect. But we are to be intelligent beings with emotion. And the point being that we are to be critically, critical thinkers. We are, to, we are to look at truth. We are to weigh the evidences. We are to, to look at, at, again, opposing even views of things to have a greater understanding of what we do believe and what we know to be, what we cognitively understand. So when John says, people say statements such as this, for instance, and I don't want to discount this. I want you to clearly hear, please, what I am saying. But you hear people make statements such as this. 
Well, I know that I know that I know that I'm saved. That is an emotionally driven statement. You say, how do you know? Because I asked Jesus in my heart. Well, that's not what John's talking about here. John's saying you might have a cognitive, intellectual, intelligent, spiritual understanding by discernment of the Spirit who dwells in you. He's already dealt with these things. With all the evidence that I have provided you in all of these chapters, he didn't write them in chapters, of course, but in this epistle. So all the evidence I have written in this epistle serves to prove that you are in fellowship with God or either you are not in fellowship with God. So this has nothing to do with how you feel. It has nothing to do with even your experiences. It has everything to do with the evidence of faith within your life as described by John. So this is very important because, listen, we have moved into a realm where it's like push all intelligence aside and let's just go on emotion. And that is a dangerous place to live. Paul addressed this. Now, I don't want to get bogged down here, but Paul addressed this when he said that we are not to be talked about by every wind of doctrine. Well, why would we be tossed about by every wind of doctrine? Because we're not rooted in truth. We're not anchored in truth. And so if we are sober-minded and anchored in truth, and we're not talking about intellectualism in that we reason out salvation. Listen, don't, don't go away from your thinking that's what I'm implying, because I am not at all. I'm telling you what John is saying. He's saying that you might cognitively understand that you have eternal life and that you are of God. All this evidence has been provided for you so you can judge your life, examine yourself to see if you be in the faith, as Paul said, and to see that these evidences are actually present in you or they are not. It's kind of interesting. Those who would obviously, there would be those who would, who would want to argue or contend with these truths that John writes here because it's so, they are so driven by emotions in which the day in which we live. But isn't it funny, those same people will never, never talk about salvation apart from one coming to understand. Is that not true? Well, how do we understand? It's the Spirit of God bringing us to understanding, but it's with our minds that we are brought to understanding as the Spirit enlightens us to His truth. And that's what John's saying here. Here's the truth, and you have the Spirit of God in you if you know God, so these evidences will be clearly manifested in you, and you should know, you should recognize, you should see, you should cognitively understand that you possess eternal life by all the evidence that's provided. However, John not only provides affirmation that one knows God in these verses, but he also provides the basis for the confidence one has when in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And we will see this truth unfold within these verses of the passage. Let's read verses 18 through 20 again. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is he is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God. Here it is. We know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God has come and hath ever given us an understanding. Oh, wow. He's given us what? An understanding that we may know Him that is true and we are in Him that is true even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So the passage needs to be carefully examined. This passage, if we are understand the truth of which John is writing. Let's look at verse 18. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Now verse 19 is where we're really heading, not yet tonight, but this is, this is key here. And we know that we are of God. Do you see that? We understand, we have this understanding that we are of God. 
And we have an understanding that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. And we have an understanding that the Son of God has come, and that understanding that the Son of God has come, it's that same Son of God we understand to be the Son of God, who gives us understanding that we may know Him that is true. And we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. If this is the true God in eternal life, you know what John's actually saying? This is true salvation. This is true salvation. Within the first portion of this verse, John addresses all those who have been born again. Notice what he says. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. So we know, we understand that those who've been born of God do not sin. Now, does that mean, and we've already seen this, so we've got to go back and review what I told you. Chapter 5 is a broad summarization of everything John's already dealt with. He's just now finalizing the letter. It is not uncommon. If you think about someone writing a paper, okay, in college, if you've been to college, or even in high school, when you had to write papers in high school, and you find this to be true throughout the Scriptures in these epistles, there is always a thesis statement that is made. There's always a thesis. What is a thesis? I'm sorry? It's a, who's saying that? Oh, an idea what? It's an idea, right? It's the thesis. It's concerning the content of the purpose of what we are writing. This is what we're writing for this reason. This is the idea, if you will. And so John provides this thesis in the very beginning. And he said, I've written these things. It's all about fellowship, that your joy might be full. Well, how is that joy full? Because we know Christ and we know uh, we are in him is in us, therefore we are in fellowship with God and we have a fullness of joy because of the fellowship that we have with God and all these things are written that we might see and understand these truths. And so in chapter 5, it's not uncommon, as I said, if you've ever written a paper in college or in high school or what have you, it is not uncommon that thesis is stated, everything is supporting that thesis, but it is not uncommon to have that thesis restated as it is being concluded, because it's driving back to everything that's been stated was for this reason and purpose. So in chapter 5, John does that. In chapter 5, he summarizes, if you will, everything he has previously stated and explains that this is why he's written this. So as we read this first portion of the text of verse 18, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, John is not making some radical statement here. He's already dealt with this. And he's going to now just reemphasize it. So let's go back and see where he's already dealt with this. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, he said, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is transgression of the law. During our study of this chapter, I told you the term transgresseth the law means lawlessness. So John is stating in verse 4 that those who practice or continue in sin are living lives of lawlessness. So when John says here in chapter 5.18, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, John is not saying that as a believer we never commit a sin, we never are guilty of sin as a believer. In fact, if you go back, let's just look back at the beginning of the epistle. Look back with me real quickly, please, to chapter 1, just to show again what John is writing here. He says in verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I think it's very clear that John establishes the fact that even as believers, guess what we do? We sin. Okay, so the argument's not, oh, if you're a believer, you're sinless. 
You never have to worry about sin again. No, that's just not true, and we know it. And why would Paul write in Galatians 5? 5? Why would he write Romans 7? Why would we have all these passages James writes about all this struggle that takes place, right? If we've been looking at it, spiritual warfare on Sunday mornings. And so we understand that when he writes this, he's not saying that as a believer, oh, you know, we never commit any sin at all. We never are guilty of sin from the time we are born again. No, rather he's saying transgress of the law, which means lawlessness. And so what he is saying is that those who are born again, those who are, are uh, born of God, sinneth not in the sense that they do not practice or continue in sin, living lives of lawlessness. If you know someone who professes to be born again and they just live a life of lawlessness, John says that person is not born again. No matter what they say. 1 John 3, 5, he goes on to say, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Now Jesus Christ was manifested to take away our sin, and he is without sin. And the question here is not, are we able to sanctify ourselves? But the question is, is he sufficient to sanctify us? And within this passage, John clearly declares that Jesus is all-sufficient to take away our sins because he is without sin himself. Verse 6. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Now this is verse 6, chapter 3. Again, all those who abide and remain and continue in Christ through the redemptive work of God do not continue or practice sin. John is emphasizing this truth here. Those who do practice sin, practice sin, have never seen Jesus or known Jesus for who He is. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of mankind. He is God's holy, righteous, and sufficient provision for us. And if we understand that and we've been born again, understanding who God is through revelation of Christ, through His Word, we understand that we are of Him and He is in us and we are in Him because He has born us, birthed us, we are born again into His family, then we do not continue just living lives of lawlessness. And this isn't something we're attempting to not do. This is something that will not be a reality within those who know God. Now look, I sin. You sin. Right? So we're not perfect. We're not sinless. But the difference or the question to be asked is, is my life filled with lawlessness? Or am I filled with the righteousness of Jesus? Verse 7, again of chapter 3, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous. Oh, look at there. There he says it. He who does righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous, even as Christ is righteous. Now, is that saying that somehow my righteousness can... can equal the righteousness of Jesus? Of course not. We are righteous even as he is righteous. The only way I can be righteous as he is righteous is if his righteousness is accredited to me. But now because he is righteous and he is in me, righteousness is now blooming forth from my life because of his righteousness. And again, these are absolute statements made by John. The evidence of salvation and the power of Jesus to transform a life both now and eternally, is true within every believer. And the verb doeth is the same word translated committeth in verse 4. So when you go back to verse 4 of chapter 3, whosoever committeth, and then when you come to chapter 3, verse 7, he that doeth righteousness. It's called talking about continuing and practicing. So it's the same word translated in a different 
English word, but the same Greek word, meaning that one is practicing or living in or living out lawlessness, or one is practicing or living in and living out righteousness. So these are in direct contrast the one to the other. By the way, again, this has nothing to do with how you feel. It has to do with the evidence. It's the proof. So the truth is that those who practice sin are not only wicked because they sin, but they are sinful because, or they sin because they are wicked. And in like manner, those who do practice or live in righteousness are righteous even as or because he, Jesus, is righteous. And again, this is not saying that their acts of righteousness make them righteous, but that they act in righteousness because they are righteous because of Christ. And John further explains the source of this righteousness is Jesus himself. He says, he that doeth righteousness, verse 7, is righteous even as he, Jesus, is righteous. Verse 8. He that committeth sin of the, is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For the, this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, let me ask you a question. And this is something that's not dealt with very often, I don't believe, not in the proper manner at least, by many. Jesus is sufficient, obviously. And it says, this, for this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, this is in relation to the previous statement in verse 8, which is this. He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. But Jesus was manifested to do what? To destroy the works of the devil. Now, let's just follow this to its logical conclusion here for a moment, okay? The devil sins, he sinned from the beginning... He that committeth sin, he that practices sin, he who lives in sin, he who practices lawlessness, absence of righteousness, is of the devil. And then John further explains and emphasizes the reason this is so. For this purpose... The Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Does that simply mean, oh, Jesus came to claim defeat over Satan? Well, yes, that's what he's saying, but this is in relation to what? It's in relation to individuals who live in lawlessness. Are you connecting this? It is connected. Don't disconnect it. In other words, what John is saying is that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, not just in a general broad sense, but those who were captive to sin, Christ came to set them free. And therefore, how can one who Christ has set free still live as one captive to sin when the whole purpose of his coming was to destroy the works of Satan? Are y'all seeing this? Do you see the connection? So the only way someone can continue in simple practice is because they do not know the Lord Jesus. For it is Jesus who was sent by God to destroy the works of the devil or sin. And if one is in Jesus, then he cannot be or remain in sin. And if one is in sin or remains in sin, then he cannot be in Jesus. Again, John's emphasizing this truth. John continues to explain the reason those who are born again cannot continue to practice sin. Verse 9, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Those who are born of God... Those who are born again cannot remain or continue in sin because Jesus dwells in them. That's what he's saying. He dwells in them, he dwells with them, he is righteous. Verse 10, in this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil, 
Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. John again emphasizes this definitive truth that the Spirit of God, the life of Christ within every born-again believer, will not and cannot be hidden within the life of the one in whom he dwells. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil in like manner. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. So we are manifest in that righteousness is now coming from us because we live in practice and, and remain in righteousness while the unbeliever lives and remains in lawlessness and sin. So let's go back to verse 18 now. Look again at the beginning of verse 18. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. See, in the previous chapter of chapter 3, that is, John has already, as we just reviewed again, John has already dealt with this truth. Those who are born of God, whosoever, not the Son of God, whosoever is born of God, those that are believers in Christ, do not practice sin. Do not continually live in sin. Do not practice lawlessness, but rather righteousness, because he is righteous who lives in us. But now let's go back to verse 18 again in the latter part of this verse. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and the wicked one toucheth him not. Now, the second portion of this verse, again, is revisiting another passage of Scripture, which I mentioned a moment ago, actually two of them. Verse 5 of chapter 3, And ye know that he, Christ, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Then look again at verse 9 of chapter 3. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. Whose seed remains in who? Christ remains in us. So that means he cannot sin because he is born of God. Saying that Jesus is within us and the seed of God the Father within us, which is Christ, therefore we cannot continue in sin. Not meaning we cannot sin, we cannot continue in lawlessness. But notice here, verse 5 again of this chapter 3, let's look at that one more time. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Now, this is talking about Jesus. Jesus, of course, was manifested to take away our sins, and the only reason he's able to do that is because there is no sin in him. So, as followers of Jesus Christ, we don't remain in sin or continue to practice sin because Jesus, the sinless one, is living his life in us, and he is the one keeping us. He that is begotten of God, and that wicked one touches not. Now, ultimately, because we are in Christ, Satan cannot touch us, can he? But understand, he cannot touch Christ. And we are kept in Christ. As a matter of fact, 1 Peter tells us this in chapter 1, verses 3-5. through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So how... By the power of God. Do you see this? Why is righteousness coming from me? Because he who lives in me is righteous. And if righteousness is not present within me, then lawlessness is going to be lived out from my life and in my life. So John makes it very clear here in verse 18. 
We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. We know, we understand, we have a cognitive understanding based upon all the evidence that I've provided within this epistle, John says, that one who is genuinely born again in fellowship with God cannot practice or continue in sin. But, it is because of, we are in Christ and Christ is in us who is sinless that we are kept. And we remain in Him and He remains in us, therefore we are kept by the power of God until, notice what Peter said, unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So hence, whenever we make statements such as this, I am saved. I am delivered from the punishment of sin. But I am also being saved because I'm continually being sanctified and cleansed from the presence of sin. And I shall be saved, which is an eternal work finished and completed, when redemption is complete. The work of redemption is complete, meaning what was required for our redemption was accomplished on the cross. But redemption or salvation, the process of that is still being realized. Hence, Paul says, an important thing to note here, Paul does not say we are as in present. What does he say? We are espoused unto Christ. What does that mean? We are engaged in common vernacular to Christ. And he says that I might present you a chaste virgin to him as his bride. So we are his bride, but that has yet to actually be fulfilled. We are those who are espoused unto him. And therefore, if we are his bride and we claim we love him, follow this now, and this ties perfectly with what John is teaching us here. If we claim we love God, think of a woman, or in this case a woman, who claims to love a man who is engaged to this man, and then she goes out and lives a life of whoredoms. What would you say about her? Maybe first she's a liar, wouldn't you? That she really doesn't love this man at all. When she's espoused him, she's engaged to him, but you know what? doesn't matter. Are you following what's being said here? So he's saying that this is a, we as a, the bride of Christ, we are espoused to Christ one day for that marriage to be realized where we become the bride of Christ and then we are before Him blameless and holy. But who is keeping us? We are kept by the power of God. It's interesting when you look at John's writing here. Notice what he says in verse 21. The last verse of this, chapter, of this book. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Is that just out of place? Not at all. Not at all. We're not there yet, but we'll get there. 